Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. And I remember thinking at the time, that is great evidence if you hadn't seen him with his clothes off, you wouldn't know he had a hairy back. Surprise, Australian true crime listeners, Narelle Fraser is back. 
So many of you have asked to hear Narelle again, so here she is. You may remember I promised another episode with Roland Legg this week and I haven't forgotten, but here's the thing. Due to unforeseen circumstances, Roland can't make our live show at the Yarraville Club on April 8. So our old friend Narelle Fraser has agreed to step in for that one too. That's right, you can see Narelle live on stage with Emily and I at the Yarraville Club. You can ask her questions while she's on stage and if you're lucky, you might even get to take a selfie with her. Naturally, of course, there's a link in the show notes and on our Facebook page so you can snap up some of the last remaining tickets to that show. And there's also a link to Narelle's own podcast, The Narelle Fraser Interviews. We bring you an episode of that podcast today featuring former detective Tim Peck. It's always a treat to hear two detectives chatting and this conversation is very special. I shall leave you now in the capable hands of the one and only Narelle Fraser. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. But it wasn't addressing the issues. The issues were my my values were so compromised that I couldn't get my head around how to manage that. Tim Peck and I, we both remember the 2nd of October 2014 for reasons which couldn't have been more opposite. I was at my Victoria Police retirement function, surrounded by friends and family, laughing, crying, reminiscing with my colleagues. Pecky, as he was and still is affectionately known, was in the depths of despair, seeing no way out of his depressive state than to drive to a secluded area and end it all. Pecky and I had been with Vicpol for years and both of us had seen a lot probably too much in fact, but not that either of us knew each other's situation. Pecky didn't end it all, thanks in part to a man whose name is probably very familiar to many of you, the lovely Mr Ron Idles. Little did I know Ron couldn't attend my retirement function because he was on the road driving to a country town hours away where a member, a Victoria Police member, was extremely distressed. And that member was, at the time, Senior Sergeant Tim Peck. Today, I want to explore Tim's exit from Victoria Police, the road back to good health and productivity. We'll also talk to Tim about his work with Beyond Blue and his current responsibilities as Manager Wellbeing Services at the Police Association and the development of a great project called the Blue Hub, providing immediate access to assessment, treatment and support for members impacted 
by poor mental health and what a perfect position Tim's in to help other members. We've both come out the other side and we're testament to the fact that a mental illness diagnosis, it's not the end of the world, but yes, it's the start of a new one, a different one. And I think I could say hand on heart, we've both learned the power and strength of honesty and sharing our vulnerabilities. Welcome and thanks for your time today, Tim. Well, thank you, Narelle. Lovely introduction. Great to hear from you again. Yes, uh, likewise. It's been a long time, Pecky. It has. It has, and I love the name of your podcast, NFI. Have you explained to the listeners <laughs> no. why it's NFI? <laughs> no, Pecky. I'm trying to leave that just oh, – yeah, that's a – it's a long story, that, but I think it's quite cheeky and quite catchy, don't you? <laughs> yes. No, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll still have a stapler with NFI. I can look at paper on the top of it. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, so as I said, uh, everything I've said there is so true, Pecky. Um, could you give us a bit of a snapshot of your career with um, Big Pole? Yeah, I was. Uh, I joined as about a 24 or 25-year-old. I wasn't a, someone who always wanted to join Victoria Police. I only joined because a friend I was working with at the time in a, in a steel yard um, indicated he was joining and said it wouldn't be a bad career. And without really much more research than that, I uh, applied and was successful in, in joining the, the academy. It was pretty soon after I joined that I realised that the only real area I wanted to work in Victoria Police was as a detective and... I pretty much from day one uh, went towards that goal. So, you know, worked my way through uniform uh, with a very big focus on crime investigations and temporary duties all aimed at trying to become a detective. Uh, That was 1994 when I joined. 2002, I had my first posting as a detective out at uh, Mill Park, the regional crime unit there, which was a a fascinating time and, you know, great memories and so on. I then moved into, was fortunate enough to move into uh, the crime department at the Missing Persons Unit where I met your lovely self and plenty of other great people. And then when the Missing Persons Unit disbanded, uh, moved into into homicide uh, onto the on the floor, as they say, but the, the response crews were aside for a couple of years. I um, then moved on to Santiago Task Force. Which, which is, a, a, just for the listeners, yep. Yeah, Santiago Task Force was set up for a, um, a specific crime theme, which was Middle Eastern organised crime. We'd had 14 unsolved non-fatal shootings in about a 12-month period, I think it was, and there was a task force to set up at the crime department. I was, I'll come to that later on. I was uh, asked to go there, but there's a bit of a story to that, um, and that was 2009. And by that stage, uh, I'd been a detective senior Connie for, you know, best part of seven or eight years. I'd um, been involved in in frontline duties that whole period of time and the time and come to look at, look at promotion um, as we do in VicPol. Rather than take a step back, we, we just go up and keep keep trying to press forward. And between 2009 and 2014, I worked at a number of different areas but managed to go from a detective senior constable to a detective senior sergeant uh, in that four-year period, which was quite... By 2013, I'd reached that that rank, so that was quite a, a rapid rise when you when you look at um, certainly is God, um, and it was really built on uh, you know reputation was everything. Um, your reputation carries you a long way. It was built on a, a work ethic that that clearly wasn't sustainable. I was available all the time. Uh, I didn't really worry about whether I was on call or not on call. If the phone rang, I'd answer it, and a uh, probably a, 
a number of my own traits that, that bought into that. So wanting to be the best at what I did, uh, a level of perfectionism, uh, not want, wanting to let others down, putting others before yourself. Um, and, but most of it was tied to policing. And what I didn't realise at the time that I do realise now that I'd certainly lost my way as a, as a person, that my um, other values were really important to me around family and health and my own um, peace of mind it had slipped right away and I was just focused on the one goal um, to my own detriment. So that's where I ended up. Uh, so I went through, yeah, um, divisional crime, at, uh, detective sergeant out at Heidelberg, so oh, manual, it was, manual crime investigation unit, um, and then into uh, the intelligence and covert support area as a detective senior sergeant. You know, you, uh, I get what you mean, Pecky, when you say that it's almost like policing becomes your world um, because you don't want to miss out on anything, do you? You want to be there for all the arrests. You, you, uh, you're virtually, when you're as keen as, say, you and I were, you want to be there, don't you? You want to be there to help your colleagues. You want to be there to help the, the victims, um, the witnesses. It's just something that it, it grabs you and just doesn't let you go, doesn't it? And I think there's, there's certain personality types that, that, that are drawn to the work and, and one of the downsides is that we we, we generally um, have a perception that no one else can do it as good as we can <laughs> and quite often if, if it's your job you want to do everything because you, you don't want to trust anyone else to do it because they've got other things to do and they won't put the same time, energy and effort in that you will and, and you do build up this sort of your own persona about how value you, how valuable you are and you know, irreplaceable and that no one else could do that interview as well. I know more about this than anyone, so it's my job, so I have to do it. And one of the you know really driving factors that I had to, to be the best that I could be, my strong belief was that I had to know more about any investigation than anyone else. So I would read endlessly and I would research and I would you know do all sorts of things in the intelligence world to find out more so I could get a result. Putting yourself um, that, under enormous pressure, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Yep. yeah. And, and you tie that into the, the, the police folklore, you know. You won't find these things written, but the, the police folklore that centres on things like, you know, you, you don't take a sick day, you, you never lose a fight, you never lose a court case, you know, all absolutely unachievable, but it cause great anxiety and, and, you know, sense of failure if you if you do any of those, if any of those experiences occur to you, it's, it's all your fault. Um, so it's there, there is a real weight of expectation that's that's probably brought about more by the culture than any of the actual you know written policies or procedures. It's more to do with the individuals and how we perceive it. Pecky, do you think that um, that culture starts at the academy? Like where where do we get that folklore that um, uh, you know you can't take the day off? Um, you've got to be strong the whole time. You can't show any vulnerabilities. Does that it's got to be uh, begin at the academy, doesn't it? There's a uh, there's a really great book on. Oh, I can't recall the name of it, unfortunately, but it's out. Of, it's a study done out of the UK in in the last three or four years, and it relates to you know policing specifically in the UK. And and, and the conclusions of that were that policing culture is learnt in the first four years, and primarily, if you remember back, I'm sure it was the same for you. If as soon as you walk out of the academy and you hit your first station, the first thing will happen when you sit in the van with a senior member is, well, forget what they told you at Disneyland. Absolutely. That didn't mean anything. Yep. This is real policing. Yeah. So right. it starts from day dot. Could you share with us some of um, if there's a few incidents or investigations you were involved in that 
may have affected you probably more than you were prepared or brave enough to admit either to yourself or to others. Is there something that really, an incident or investigation that really stood out to you? Oh, look, on, on reflection, um, I, I still remember my first session with a psych where I said it's nothing to do with trauma. It's nothing that I've seen that's caused my issues. And, and this was before, you know, well before I went off. Um, it, certainly there was lots of, um, you know, graphic and horrible things that we saw back in the day. But on reflection, I think it's probably more the, the difficulties in dealing with um, families and, and loved ones who have lost, you know, people through crime, through homicide, that, you know, really that, that want to be able to help them and support them and provide them with all, you know, that, that answer that they need and then failing to be able to do that, that really has a significant impact, more so than, than the actual seeing of, of, of you know, um, really traumatic events. I think it's the those relationships and probably not having the, the skills or the mindset to be able to manage those relationships. They, they, they really are complex and, you know, you, we just get thrown into them. There was no training around how to, how to deal with grieving families. Um, and as you would know, in the missing persons area, I think I had four investigations where we resolved without finding a body and telling a family that we're going to charge someone without a body when they've still got a belief that their loved one's alive is really difficult. And you sort of become a bit of the, the enemy in some ways as well. Hang on, aren't you still looking for them? Are they going to come home? When your firm belief is they're not, but trying to um, bridge that gap with a family or, or victims' families is, is really challenging. I think in the end that that type of uh, emotional distress was probably more difficult for me than the than the physical watching or seeing of trauma. And you're right, Pecky, because um, I don't recall out at the academy. They might have changed it now, but out at the academy you didn't talk really about emotional distress or emotions full stop because that was seen as weak, as fluffy. Um, you know, you just didn't talk about that stuff, did you? No, and it's, um, you know, it, it really is an area that, that has shifted a little in, in, in recent times. But, you know, the, the security of policing was that you knew you could go to work and no one would actually challenge you about any of that. So, so if you were a little distressed, if you were thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not travelling so well, the risk of of staying with loved ones who, who would point it out and say, you know what, I think you are struggling and you do need to go and get some help, or what, what are we going to do to help you through this? The easy thing, ironically, was to go back to work because you knew you wouldn't get challenged. The, the worst question would ever come to you: Are you okay? And you said yes, and that was it. That's right. Um, so, it, it became a safe place. So you'd spend more and more time at work because you wouldn't be challenged. You could push those thoughts aside and keep working and, and it just leads to a bigger and bigger hole that, that you, you can't find strategies to get out of as you develop. Um, you just talked then about um, not travelling too well. Was there a particular incident or time where you began to think, you know what, I, I don't think I'm going too well here? Uh, look, i would had considerable issues with alcoholism. Uh, for a long time, um, okay. you know, I grew up with alcohol. That was, you know, in the family, and, and not a, not by any stretch of mind from a family of alcoholics. So I grew up in a country town where we all played sport and a big family. So alcohol was always around. Is I guess the best way to put it. Uh, joining police was just like joining a big footy club. There was always somebody <laughs> around to have a drink with or, or go out with or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, alcohol shifted. It, it shifted from an enjoyable and um, you know really. You know, social pursuit into something that was, you know, I hated, but I couldn't stop doing. You know, I reckon in about 2005, I got 
done for 0.07 after I'd done a, a warrant at work and I'd driven home and then I'd gone down to get some, some dinner later on and I, was, I blew over. I didn't think I was over. And that was probably the first time I really started to think about my drinking and so on. And from then until 2009, I, I really did struggle with alcohol. Um, 2009 was when I first saw a, a drug and alcohol, well, it was a trauma counsellor, in fact. And that's when we started to try and manage my alcohol better. But it was a really difficult cycle to get out of because our whole culture was built around alcohol. If you won a case, you celebrated. If you lost a case, you celebrated. If you did a warrant, you celebrated. If you didn't find anything, you celebrated. Um, if, you, if a police member died, there was a funeral and you, everyone went and got, you know, went to the wake. Um, you know, th- there was always a reason. Um, and alcohol was a, a really big part of of my culture and, and in some ways, sadly, I think I ingrained that culture and taught others a very similar path, which in on reflection is probably one of my greatest regrets. Well, that's easy to say now, Pecky, isn't it? We've all um, done things that we shouldn't have or we're not proud of or you think, why the hell did I do that? But at the time it's your way of coping. Um, uh, I'm just interested when you went to see a drug and alcohol counsellor, was that with VicPol or out of VicPol? No, there was there was no way I would ever have let anyone in VicPol know that I was speaking to somebody. Um, that and again, that, on reflection, that that was my own um, doing. There, there was plenty of resources available if I wanted to use them within VicPol or through the police association. That they have, you know, employee assistance programs. They have a psych unit. They have peer support officers. They have chaplains. There's no you know, limit. But the culture, again, that we were in, it was you didn't tell anyone. The first thing would happen is that they wouldn't let you work anymore and, and work That's was right. the only thing that was keeping me going. That's right. Um, they'd take you off your case. They'd take you off the job. You'd be put in some menial, not that filing is menial. I'm digging myself a hole here. But we would be put into some um, filing job and that's not what we wanted, was it? We joined because we wanted to deal with people and help people and it was and also you were sort of shamed a bit, weren't you, when you were put into the filing office? Oh but yeah, yeah the stigma was significant, you know, and, and we still have those those issues. Not so much now, but you know, you don't have to go back too far in the, in the past where, you know, a member who who did experience a mental health condition and they're they're, they're you know, ost or their, you know, capacity to carry a firearm was removed. That, that there would be a big red cross across their firearm in the cabinet. Now, everybody knew, well, why, why is he off? Clearly, clearly there's an issue. So there was no, um, there was a real stigma around it. Um, it. It's very hard to put police back into non-operational roles that are meaningful simply because of the nature of the, the way the organisation is set up. Um, but but I think that there's still that responsibility. You know, I, I could have reached out to Big Paul, but... I was too fearful, and and back then, certainly, if I was thinking of promotion, uh, in my mind, any de- declaration that I had a, a mental health condition would significantly impact me trying to get promoted, um, which which is quite bizarre. Yeah. What what was it that stops us? Because I'm in the same boat. What is it that stops us from um, seeking help within Vicpol? It's purely this. Would you agree? It's purely the stigma. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's probably a, a cultural aspect that, that grew up over time, but the ability to be able to, to reach out and develop your own plan of managing your mental health doesn't necessarily have to include VicPol. 
and I'm not saying it shouldn't include Vicpol, but we each have a responsibility to, to look after our own mental health and everyone's different and everyone will have their own way of doing that. So the way I sort of look at it now is that if, if people choose to use Vicpol resources and, and so on, fantastic, go for it. If others choose to do it in other ways, that's great as well. The, the overarching part is, though, that it shouldn't impact on your career or on your you know, capacity to find meaningful work if you're suitable, suitable for that work, simply because in the past you've had a mental health condition. If you're managing it well, it's no different to a physical condition. Yeah, and that's and that's where we've got to change. Yep. If you break your arm, you know it's six or eight weeks or whatever. Or if you have a knee reconstruction, it's you know it's twelve months and you're back, and it's a pretty clear timeline and plan of when you're going to get back. Well, unfortunately, mental health, we don't know when we're going to be able to develop that strategy around us to be able to manage our mental health well. But we can return in, in a safe way and be just as effective as we were in the, in the past. We might look at things differently. We might, you know, use different strategies that we had in the past. But there's no barrier to returning. Uh, obviously, some members become so unwell they can't return, and, and that's really unfortunate and sad. But that's part of the journey as well. Um, returning to functioning really is the first goal that I talk to many members about now. Once we return to functioning, we can make decisions about whether we return to VicPol. But the, the first stage is getting well again and then moving forward from there. Yeah. Um, could you take us to the build-up to that day in October and how you got to the point you did where you didn't think you could continue? Yeah, so that, that had been building up for some time. So 2009, as I said, I, I took promotion and, and went out to Mooney Ponds in a uniform sergeant role. Um, I think I only lasted 12 weeks before I found myself into a plain clothes role again. But from that time, you know, from 2009 to 2013, really, I'd, I'd moved through a number of workplaces. I'd, the cycle would be I'd stop drinking generally for about three months, uh, go to the new workplace, be a bit of a shining star, uh, let the ego shine, have the homicide strut as you walked around and told everyone how big you were, what you could do. Uh, no shortage, no shortage of uh, self confidence or ego. Um, really, you know, set up and you know could have a really good impact and set up some good systems and you know teach members and it was you know really enjoyable. But at the back of my mind, that that nagging you know second sort of voice would come out and that, you know, you're not good enough. Someone's going to catch catch you out and find out that, you know, you haven't done this or you haven't done that or that property that you're meant to get rid of, you haven't got rid of or, or that, that brief that was due at the coroner's court and hasn't been done yet or you've taken on this project and you're not up to date, someone's going to start working out, you're not as good as you say you are. And that stress would build up and then operational events and, you know, a whole range of life events and so on and generally I'd, I'd go back on the drink and, when I, when I got back into the drinking, it was binge drinking pretty much and a lot of it by myself. And that, that's a really sad and self-destructive behaviour, but it, it was only escapism. It was only trying to rid myself of those thoughts and those thoughts that I was of no worth and, and useless, which was in de- direct contrast to the mask I put on and the, and the image I portrayed in the workplace. So most people would have said he's confident and competent and articulate intelligent he's got it all going for him but that's what they saw internally i was exploding you know i would be anxious all the time i'd be so shit scared that someone would find out that i was a fraud that you know and you know as an investigator you're looking at evidence and you know i could show the evidence that i was good at what i did but my mind wouldn't accept that so this internal struggle continued along and then you know just making really bad choices about work about continuing to go down this promotion path because I had to be the best at what I did. So 
I would continually throw myself into work at the expense of the things that actually kept me well. So relationships at home, so family and kids, my own physical health, my own mental health. Whenever it got too difficult, I either went to alcohol or just threw myself back into work and most of the time a combination of both. Fortunately, I was able to function at a high level whilst I was an alcoholic, which was quite amazing. I was actually known in my area as the highest functioning alcoholic in Victoria Police, but no one actually said to me, maybe you should do something about your drinking. Did they make um, light of that? Did they picky or? Uh, I only found that out later that that's how oh, I was okay. perceived. Mm-hmm. But, like, people knew that I drank a lot and they probably didn't know how much I drank. I was very crafty, you know, when you knew as many people as I did. Um, you, you could move around in different circles of people and drink every night and people not, you know, one group not be aware, you know, from the next group that I'd already been drinking the night before. And then, you know, cycle your way through a week and, and, and the worlds would never collide, so to speak. So my little secret was safe. But that only increased my anxiety. Well, what if they find out? What if people start to think? So that went through a real, you know, that cycle became more and more um, devastating as I went through. So, you know, w- when you get off the drink and you're three months off or four months off and you think, wow, you know, I've got this nailed this time, you know, I can do this. Um, but the pressure had come back on and I'd, you know, inadvertently just go back. And at that time I was seeing a counsellor and, uh, you know, I'd done a lot of training in, in human source um, techniques at that time. So, you know, managing conversations and de- deception detection and, you know, all that, you know, getting people to do what you want them to do without them knowing, all that type of psychological sort of games we used to play. And I, was, I recall walking out of, you know, psych rooms and out of his room and just thinking he hasn't touched me, this bloke. I've told him nothing about who I am. I'm way too smart for him. He'll never work it out. You know, going to lie about how much I drank or lie about what I was doing. And I never bought into the the sessions. It was me, you know, babbling on about what I thought he wanted to hear. Um, And and really, I thought they were a waste of time. And the only reason I was going is because my wife basically said if I didn't, that'd be it. Yeah. And was this with the big pole, Pecky, or not? No, no, all external, all external, all through my GP. Uh, I was paying for it all myself um, for a number of years. And I guess getting back to your, your question, when did I realise it was uh, all all going badly? I'd known for a while, but um, I reckon about April of 2014, um, I first started having serious thoughts about suicide. So I'd been going through that cycle for probably four years. Um, I was back on the drink big time. I'd being um, the type of person I was, I'd been through a period of not drinking when I first got the job. I was getting things set up. It was a pretty high-pressure job. I was well supported by my bosses. There's no mistake there. But And I'd recruited people who I knew and liked. So I had a really good team and, and all those types of things. But, again, the, the doubts just crept in and, and my drinking started to escalate and then I was paranoid about being followed, about, you know, having in turn, the PSC following me, trying to find out whether I was drinking or not and, and these types of thoughts. And then that would then, you know, when you escalate that, it'd go into, oh, there's, you know, some of these people you've dealt with in the past, they're after you, you know, threats and all that sort of stuff that have been made in the past. Well, maybe they're trying to get you. And so my mind was really a mess and I was very down on myself for not being able to manage my alcoholism. So I would, you know, get really... Uh, look, drinking is a horrible thing here when you when you can't control it. You, you spend all day trying to convince yourself you're not going to have a drink. You get to, you know, four o'clock and then you, you have a drink, so you feel horrible about doing that and you've let yourself down and so on. You get to an hour of buzz time 
uh, and that's you know makes everything go away and then you spend the rest of the night just getting hammered trying to make it go away and wake up the next day and do the same cycle it, it's so exhausting it is nonsensical it is soul destroying in a lot of ways so i reached a point where i didn't think i could beat that and i could see the hurt i was doing to my family i was really concerned about the reputational damage to vicpol if i if something did happen when i was pissed and i shouldn't have been um and i was really embarrassed about my broader family finding out the length of my despair and where i'd fallen to so it's probably about april 2014 was the first time i it jumped in my mind well maybe there's a way out here maybe suicide could be the way out and you know it's one of those things where it's like a 10 percent, 90 percent, 10 percent comes in your head and you think don't be a dick that that that's not the solution you know you've got more to live for than that and so on but as time went on that that shifted that shifted to about you know 50 50 Mm. And by about August that year, it was, um, I still recall it vividly, it was just after my 47th birthday. I was in a park in, um, at the Darabin Parklands looking over the, the park with my wife and I'd been, um, had a really bad patch at that time. I was really struggling with alcohol and work and the, the marriage was really struggling. The, my relationship with the kids was in, in a lot of trouble. And I recall saying to her then that, you know, she said, well, why don't we, because we tried so many things, we tried changing work locations. Well, that doesn't fix things if you're not going to change yourself. Yeah, you're right. We, we tried, you know, little bits of time off here and there, and she suggested perhaps I take long service leave. And, and I've reached the point where I said, it won't matter, I won't be here by Christmas. And I'd given up doing paperwork that, that I knew would be due by the end of that year. Um, I was planning quite clearly that, you know, the time was coming and I would suicide and that's one of my you know really great regrets like what does my wife do with that she knows i'm actively thinking about it i wasn't telling my psych that uh because i knew that he would intervene uh what does she do bring my bring my workplace that i've you know turned turned into the bad people for the last 10 years saying they're making me work all this overtime and making me do all these things and when most of it was my own choice like she couldn't ring them and say i'm worried about him um would you ring the GP and say, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, I'd deny anything anyway. So it just put her in this really horrible position of, is he going to come home every night? Am I going to see him again? And that, that was really, you know, um, digging away at me. But it, it is a really difficult thing to describe. And for anyone who's listening who, who might, this may raise some issues for, I really encourage you to, you know, reach out to Lifeline or Beyond Blue or, or whatever other um, resources you use when, when you're thinking about these types of issues. But I actually got a sense of calm when I thought about suicide. It, it gave my brain a place to go to and relax because I could put all those horrible thoughts away and just think, well, it's not going to matter. And... That built up. Uh, I had a, a number of issues going on, and on the second of October, twenty fourteen, at three a.m. in the morning, after um, spending time again by myself, drinking and so on, I crashed a covert police car into a parked car in Grange Road in Fairfield, uh, absolutely hammered. Um, the car was on its side when I worked out where I was. I remember the first feeling, thinking, "If this is death, it feels pretty much like being alive." Uh, fortunately because I was and when they uh, in time reenacted the the accident I wasn't very courageous either as I was only doing 22 k's an hour when that happened <laughs> um, but I, I remember laying on the on the on the car and I was on my side and I couldn't get out and if I had got out I would have ran I would have taken off and they wouldn't have found me and um, some you know members of the public come out and help me out of the car and I'm 
you know, just horrified at what they'd be thinking if they found out this bloke's going to be out there protecting us and have a look at him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then police turned up. Unfortunately, I hadn't injured anyone else or I wasn't too badly injured myself. And the police turned up and I treated them like rubbish. I, uh, I wouldn't talk to them. I refused the breath test because I knew they couldn't arrest me and then basically challenged them to arrest me under the Mental Health Act or I was leaving. Uh, told I was going to kill myself and walked off. I jumped into a taxi and got a train in, I got a taxi into the city. Um, so I was covered in blood and limping a bit and jumped on a train. God. Uh, at, you know, I think it was 5.30 in the morning or something by the stage and uh, got on a train and, you know, really, really confused headspace. But it was, it's difficult to describe. If, if you had been in that taxi with me, I would have been able to do a, a pros and cons sort of argument and convince you that suicide was the way out. That's how clear my thought was around that. I'd sent text messages off to people saying, that's it, you won't find me. I'll turn my phone off. Um, and off I went and I jumped on a train and I went to Warrnambool. Now, hopefully there's no listeners from Warrnambool there, but really it's probably a sign of where my mental health was at, that if you're the last resting place of all the lovely places in the world, you pick Warrnambool, you've got some issues, I think. Only joking phrase. It's not a bad place. <laughs> So, oh, yeah. Some very good friends of mine come from Warrnambool. I can only <laughs> hope they're not listening. <laughs> so I, uh, I got I got on the train and I, and, and I remember parts of the journey. I remember other parts being really distressed, um, you know, crying and so on. And I remember sitting by myself and we stopped at Geelong and I got off and then got back on. And I was you know, really <laughs> struggling and I got to um, got to Warrnambool and being the good alcoholic that I was, I couldn't do anything without having another beer. So I went to the pub at 9.30 in the morning. I was the first customer. And uh, I asked him, my, my plan was to, to, to write my suicide note on my phone and, and my funeral plans, which I'd been over hundreds and hundreds of times. I knew exactly what I was going to write. I knew exactly what I was going to say. And I yeah. asked him to plug my phone in to, to get charged. Um, and for someone who'd spent the best part of his career, somewhat of an expert in tracking people on mobile phones and, and the yeah. like, uh, you just I think subconsciously thinking. I knew that mm. if that happened, they'd find me. And I reckon within 10 minutes there was uh, a couple of coppers walked in. I thought, geez, that's odd. What are they doing here? <laughs> uh, and then it sort of it dawned on me that the game was up, uh, yeah. that they'd, they'd come to grab me. And it, it was a really strange experience because even though I knew that the game was up, I, I just thought if I play the game, I'll, I'll get out of this. They won't be able to lock me up and then I can do what I need to do. So I hadn't given up at that stage. Um, and then that's where, you know, I had to go over to Portland and be assessed. And uh, obviously I told them all the right things. I was pretty experienced in, in, in what to say so that people wouldn't lock me up. Uh, when I saw a clinician over there and they gave me all clear and, and Ron drove down from from Melbourne to pick me up and drive me back to Melbourne the next day. How did Ron uh, get on to you? What, what was Ron's um, association with you? Uh, well, Ron was, had obviously been my boss for a long time and I'd sent him a text message that morning telling him I was going to finish it. Um, he'd been ringing and ringing. Uh, obviously, I had my phone off. I hadn't taken any notice. Um, but I think when the police came in and they asked me, who, who do you want to contact? And I said, oh, you know, give Ron a ring and let him know. He'll know what to do. Um, I was really embarrassed about speaking to my family. Um, I was really worried about going home and seeing the kids. So I didn't want my parents to know. Uh, siblings, it was, yeah, it was a mess. Um, and it, one of the interesting things is, you know, suicidal ideation doesn't just disappear. It's not like because that happened, it wasn't still there. Of course, it was still there. But a few things started to shift. Um, 
I come back to Melbourne. Uh, I knew I'd lo- I knew I'd lose my job. Um, so everything I'd worked for had been thrown out. Um, my mind was, you know, just racing. I couldn't sleep. I wouldn't take the medications they'd give me. Um, it was a really the only piece I could find was walking. Um, I was probably twenty kilos heavier than I am now. Um, just through drinking and not eating and not sleeping and so on back then. And I'd just walk. I'd go out and walk for hours just trying to exhaust myself so I'd get some sleep and I'd listen to music. And, you know, generally really depressing music. It <laughs> <that> would just <laughs> buy into my, uh, my mindset. But oh, I remember God, it as if you're not sad next... enough. God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I off the next day and it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon uh, the wife was at work and the kids were at school and I, I remember sitting here and just thinking, well, what, what am I going to do? And, and, again, the plans were all there. I, I knew exactly how I was going to do it and what I was going to do. And I had a psych appointment I had to go to that day. That, that was the only reason I was allowed to back. Uh, and I remember walking there. It was about seven and a half k's and I decided to walk. Um, and it, it was just such the longest the longest walk and it was a, the longest walk back and how many times I thought about, you know, what I wanted to do and... It was just a, a really difficult time. But in, in that session, I can't remember if it was that day or in, it was in that first week, I remember talking to the psych and it was the first time I actually opened up about how I was going, about what was affecting me and, and how I felt. And it, it shifted our relationship instantly. Um, like I've got no doubt some of the stuff we spoke about that I thought was rubbish probably saved me on that day um, in hindsight. But one of the things he said was I gave him all the reasons why I should complete suicide and he said you know you're very smart Tim and that's a great way of looking at the world if that's what you want but there's one major flaw in your thinking and and that is you're making decisions for others you're, you're making decisions based on what you think so when you say that your wife's going to be better off if you're not here I'm happy for you to go down that path if that's what you think but you ask your wife first what she thinks ask your kids what they think before you do that because you don't get to choose what they think and that changed things a lot. That started me thinking, get out of my own little head. There's a bigger picture here that, you know, the worldview of others is important. It's not the world according to me. And all that sort of self-centred, egotistical life that I'd lived for the last seven or eight years, and that's all it really was about. It was about me. Every sacrifice was made so I could get where I could get to. Um, it really was a self-centred way. But in hindsight, again, it's... I think part of it was because I had security there. I wouldn't get challenged if I was at work. No, no one would have a conversation with me and say you are struggling or I could keep working hard and get the plaudits and then no one would think about it. This bloke can't be struggling because they look at what I was doing. So it was a way of hiding it safely, and, but it wasn't addressing the issues. The issues were my, my values were so compromised that I couldn't get my head you know, around how to manage that. So... You know, one of the exercises we did was, you know, tell me the most four important things in your life. And I'd say, you know, my wife, my kids, my physical health, my mental health, my extended family. Tell me how many hours a day you spend thinking about them as compared to how many days you spend thinking about work. How many decisions do you make every day where you put them first? Mm. And honestly, I could say I, I didn't put any decisions first about my family. Everything I did was for work. And I'm not blaming Vic Paul for that. that no, was my, no, I understand. That yep. was my um, own personality and my want to be the best thing. You know, I worked so much overtime that I was never asked to do. I just had to be there because I, I love the, you know, the reputation. I love the, the, the trappings that come with it, if you like, you know, the adulation. And, oh, look at this bloke. He's a gun. He's fantastic. 
But I look back now and just think, you know, for what for what cause? And it was quite clear that I couldn't have maintained what I was doing for an extended period anyway. You know, the, the work rate I was trying to do with the alcoholism was always going to end badly. But in, in that mindset, I couldn't see that. So one of the real um, tricks or one of the real problems that we have is when you're unwell, you, you don't have that capacity to look from the outside in and say, mate, what are you doing? Like, like if you were to sit down and say, what's the benefits of driving when you when you let that night? What were the benefits? Like I, was middle, I was only I was close to home. I quite easily could have got a taxi. But what was the actual benefit of driving that night? And, and it's not logical. What are the risks? What could happen badly? Well, you could lose your job, you could lose your wife, you could lose your family, you could lose your life. Mm. Or, or cause somebody else's life to end. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would not have been able to manage with that at all. If I'd have injured someone, I would have been distraught. Um, but why would you put yourself in that position? But we continually did, and, and, and that was my battle that, that I couldn't get around. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So it started a whole new journey then. So after October, I was uh, seeing my clinician regularly, very regularly, daily for a period. Um, obviously, there was suicide plans and things in place as, as in you know treatment plans to make sure that I didn't. Um, I started looking after myself better physically. Uh, and one of the strategies we came up with, uh, and, and look, the relationship I have with him now is fantastic. He's only just retired, this clinician, and he's been with me since then. Your saviour, <laughs> one of your saviours. <laughs> yeah, he really is a, you know, and I think it helped that he was outside of policing, to be honest. I think it helped that he didn't have to know my world, but he could listen and understand. And uh, over time we built up that really strong bond um, and I think, you know, one of the things he really encouraged me to do, because when I finished work, I still had all the noise in my head. I still had all those operations and, and briefs and, and, and things, you know, I, I couldn't go anywhere. And I was so embarrassed that if I saw a police car, I'd hide. I, I'd 
you know, I would go out unless I was walking down, you know, walking along the river. I was scared to go to shops or didn't want to take the kids to school and things like that. I was just embarrassed that people would find out what had become of me. Um, and, and continually, my, my, it's not as if the, the, you know, the neural pathways in your brain just shift and you turn off work. They kept thinking. They kept, you know, well, what about this job? What's happening with this? How can you do this? Or you might be able to get back, you know. And all those little thoughts about, yeah, you could get back. You can do this. You're really good. They'll take you back. The other part of my head saying, well, don't be an idiot. Who's going to take you back? Look what you've done. There's no way. The reputational damage is way too big. So this internal dialogue just went on and on. So one of the things that that, that uh, was recommended, we, we did an exercise where we, we sat at our table in, in his room and we took everything off the table literally everything off the table. So it was just a blank table. And he says, tell me what you want to do. If you're not a policeman, what are you going to do? And the first thing's come into my brain, well, you don't understand, mate. Who else is going to employ me? I only know policing. No one else needs to, uh, needs to know how to write a, an affidavit to get a telephone intercept or to manage a surveillance team or, you know, to put a brief of evidence together or prepare an affidavit. Who else needs that rubbish? It's only policing. I'm no good to anyone else. Says, well, let's let's work through that. But if policing's off the table, what else would you do? What's important to you, and what else would you want to do? And this took a number of weeks. And over that period of time, the, the things that really came to the fore was that uh, I, I did like helping people. I was a, a strong communicator, so I could verbally and in written form communicate well. And that it had to be something that was in line with my values. And we did a lot of work on what my values were. And, and the first one, I think you mentioned at the top of the show, was to be honest. Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm not drinking. If I'm honest with myself, my relationships are stronger. If I'm honest with myself, my physical health is better. Because, you know, I could go and have a drink any day now and no one would ever know except for me. So it's that honesty that really starts everything. So the first thing was I want to be honest. I want to be, second one was I want to be compassionate both to myself, so if I make a mistake, it's not the end of the world, but more importantly, compassionate to others. I needed to be tolerant of myself and the way that I was, but also tolerant of others, that if they, didn't, if they couldn't work as fast as me or as, you know, as intelligent as me or whatever, that didn't make them bad people, which was the way I sort of categorised things. If you weren't up to speed, piss off. I'll get someone who is. So I need to be more tolerant, and particularly in my own relationships. And the last thing was I just wanted to be the best person I could be. I'm worried about being the best investigator or whatever, just the best person I could be. So we had our four values there and we had what I wanted to do and helping people and a good communicator. And, and we came up with counselling that, that I'd like to be a counsellor. So we, we then went through and said, well, what, what course do you need to be able to do that? And we researched it and I found a course at Ken Miller. It was a master's in um, counselling and psychotherapy. And I started that in 2015 and completed that last year, which was 2019. Congratulations. Um, but that, that, again, was a, a real um, eye-opener, like, like going into that course where you first, you know, first day, I remember, I, I couldn't read properly. I could, I could read, but I couldn't retain things. I, I, you know, my sleep was terrible. My memory was shocking. Um, my concentration was horrible. Right, trying to write an, you know, an assignment was just so far from where I was at. But I just persevered. I only did two subjects a semester and just tried to get through. But I remember the first day seeing this room of, you know, 40 or 50 people and nobody knew who I was, much less nobody cared. They all had their stories and I had my story, but I didn't have to open up and share it or anything. It was simply 
first of all, just observing and listening to their stories and then thinking to myself, I, I wasn't really living a very normal life. The, the things that I was involved in weren't what normal people have to do. No. And policing no. is a really unique experience. And that, that course really taught me so much about myself more than anything. Um, and, you know, I'm qualified now if I wanted to be a psychotherapist, but um, I think for me it was more the benefit that I got personally. I didn't do the course so I could, you know, have a career pathway. I did it because the learning actually got my brain working again. It got me to understand mental health much better. And fortunately it led to the role of Beyond Blue that you touched on earlier. Um, so after I'd been through that experience of pleading guilty at court in the same court where I'd locked up I don't know how many people, you know, court two at Melbourne Magistrates Narell where we had so many bail applications and so on, he was eyes that offended in June of 2014 for, and, and it was just a terribly um, humiliating experience. Yeah, this was for your 05, this was for that accident. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so because I refused the breath test and the key driving and, you know, having... Uh, having to get represented, having to ask former colleagues to write referee reports for oh, you was just humiliating I can and embarrassing. Yep. Yep. Um, I remember hiding in the park with my wife right up to the last minute when my barrister rang me and said we're getting called in a couple of minutes and rushing through and sitting in the court and by myself because I didn't want to put my wife through it. It was just the most gutting experience I think that I've ever had. Back home and then, you know, I still hadn't heard much from Vic Pol at that stage and it took another six months before I got to a discipline hearing. So it was the end of 2014 uh, that I finally got to a discipline hearing and even then, ironically, I was still trying to get back to Vic Pol. I decided that I'd become a... I'd done... I'd started the course and, and, I, and I went back with a plea that I'd be a... I'd go to welfare and drop rank and be a sergeant and just teach people what I knew and hopefully they'd learn from my experience and the discipline hearing officer, probably in his wisdom and quite rightly said I'm barking up the wrong tree and, you know, it's unsustainable for you to remain. And it was the best thing that did happen because it put a full stop on my career and I resigned just after that. I was really fortunate. I started at Beyond Blue the week after, which was just an absolute... The week after? It was a fluke. Uh, But when I left Vicpol, when I finally put my resignation date in, um, my starting date at Beyond Blue was the week after. Um, There was a... Uh, part of my course, I had to do 300 hours of um, counselling as a volunteer to build up hours. And I, I rang Beyond Blue to see whether they had any, whether I could volunteer there to do counselling. They don't actually, they outsource all their counselling. They don't do any there. But the uh, the girl I spoke to, I told her the story. I said, this is where I'm at. And I was really honest and said, you know, stack my car and, you know, been, had my own mental health issues and I'm studying and blah, blah. And she said, you wouldn't believe we've had a position for a national engagement manager for the Police and Emergency Services Program we haven't been able to fill. We were looking <laughs> Don't for believe a, that. <laughs> a, a former member with, uh, with a lived experience who's happy to share it and who's got some education in mental health. And it took, uh, yeah, I went to an interview and got selected and started there in late January 2015. Um, spent that year travelling around Australia um, to all the all the different agencies and um, unions, so all emergency service unions and agencies across Australia, speaking about the Good Practice Framework, which is a, developed by Beyond Blue to help develop mental health strategies in the workplace, continued to study. Um, and it really was a, an amazing experience. It's like Previously, every trip I'd ever done in a state with work was all about how much alcohol can you smash in. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Uh, I was travelling by myself, 
Uh, I haven't had a drink since I crashed the car in October 2014, so I'm coming up six years oh, in a couple of weeks. Oh, Pecky, that is so good. Um, but it was just a completely different experience. The the, the actual, yeah. um, you know, flying and so on was actually my, my downtime for me just to be at peace with myself. No one could contact you and, and it was a completely different workplace to, to Big Pole. It was amazing. Um, I still have great friendships, uh, particularly with, you know, my manager back then. She's fantastic and we keep in touch and often bounce ideas. Um, so Beyond Blue was a great experience. Um, it got me into contact. But one thing it did teach me was about the role of unions in mental health because uh, my experience, and I'm not being critical of TPATH, but my experience was that back then if you had a mental health injury, it was pretty much get a pension through your superannuation put in a cover claim and off you go, you're done. I was 47 and I knew I had more to offer than that and, and I wanted to be, I was determined to try and get back in some way, shape or form. Um, but for, and I'm not saying that that strategy doesn't work for some people, but for me that wasn't going to work. Uh, we, we needed, and there was a real barrier between the union and the and the organisations, and this is not just VicPol and TPAP, this is across Australia. Yes. that the union would say don't go to the, the organisation for help because they won't look after you. They'll try and, you know, knock out your work cover. They're going to they're gonna say you can't be operational. They'll try and ill health retire you, which most of is untrue, but that was the the stigma, that was the, the folklore. So I was fortunate in January 2016 to be to land the role at, uh, and Ron was the secretary, but I landed the role as the wellbeing manager at, at the association. Uh, Ron was on the way out. He, I think he left after only a couple of months, uh, and so he was finished up. But one of my first tasks was to really um, bring those two groups together. So VicPol Welfare and Wellbeing Unit and our Wellbeing Unit now a far more cohesive unit. We, we, we actually both have resources that can assist members. Why would I say don't go there if there's resources that are free and good? We don't have enough resources to manage everyone. We certainly don't have resources to manage the high-risk people. VicPol have a 24-7 psychologist available. Why wouldn't we encourage members to reach out? So that was the first shift in thinking, um, and that probably brings us to you know the, the Blue Hub model that sort of evolved out of that, that one of the real gaps is that when members put their hand up to come forward, there's actually nowhere to go. So we're getting really good wait. at reducing stigma and getting people to yep. come forward. Yep. They have to wait for the treatment and our, our evidence shows that, you know, even when they do come forward, they're not getting the right treatment. So they're not getting assessed correctly and the, the evidence-based treatments that, you know, provide the, the highest probability of an outcome, a successful outcome, aren't being used. So in my head that, that sort of bounced around for a while and we're fortunate enough through the through an application through the Police Federation of Australia, the federal government, to land $2.5 million for a pilot in Victoria for the Blue Hub model. Um, wow. We engage Phoenix yeah. Australia and in the next month or so we'll, we'll kick off uh, with a number of service providers in Melbourne and we're looking at a couple in regional Victoria where there will be a 1-800 number and a, a website where you can reach out to. Uh, you'll be triaged by a, a clinician from... Um, Phoenix, and then within five days you'll be off to your first assessment, which will be a 90-minute full assessment of your mental health. Uh, and from that, within 10 days of that, you'll have your first psychology appointment with a clinician who has done five days training through Phoenix in police culture and the evidence-based treatments and recommended treatments for trauma-related injury. So it really is about getting people in quickly, uh, streamlining the work cover process so that we can get an early assessment 
the right treatment and hopefully people back to work quicker rather than that big delay in treatment that leads to so many other issues. When I look back, I think if there was a blue hub uh, when I went sick, um, you know, I and probably you as well, I'm sure, we probably, possibly could still be doing what I consider to be the best job in the world. I loved it. And and if there was that sort of um, um, support services, I just think what a uh, credit to uh, Victoria Police and the association you are because it's that lived experience that has um, catapulted you to do this, like that it is encouraged you to do it because there was nothing like that. Uh, I just think um, hats off to you, Pecky. I'm sure there are so many members out there that um, will benefit so much from your passion, but also, unfortunately, your fall. You know, it, um, it it's it's really uh, a story of hope, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's it's you know it's not just me. You know, there's so many other members I speak to all the time in my current role who are going through you know, similar stories, and, and to be able to provide some sort of system that we can treat them better. But I think the next step, and you know, unfortunately, my brain doesn't stop for long. For long, the next step really is around how, how do we how do we get into that preventative phase? How, how do we start to educate members about? what they can do to prevent them reaching the point where they're reaching out in crisis because that really is the crux of it. Policing is a unique, yeah. a unique yeah. environment and, you know, you can pull any mental health strategy or mental health program off the shelf. And my view is that most coppers, being as cynical as they are, will say, yeah, good for them, that doesn't suit me. Yes. And, and the success of Dr Gilmartin really outlines that, that he came from a policing perspective and, and people loved him because he spoke about police experience. And that really is the next phase of what we're looking at. How can we develop uh, um, resources that members can engage with that are actually directed to the members? So the, the, the examples we use, the language we use is actually for policing because they're so alienated in community. I know that sounds odd, but it's true. When it comes to mental health, you don't want to go to the local you know, emergency department and say you've got an issue when there's going to be three blokes there you might have punched on with three weeks earlier at a pub fight or a domestic violence incident. They're not options open to police. You can't go to a support group and start talking about your experiences in policing because the public doesn't, you know, aren't ready to hear what we have to say. So we do need to develop resources that are police-specific. And I think, you know, with, with Wayne Gatt at the helm and, and his, you know, drive and passion around this type of thinking... I think we will get there to, to develop and it, it won't be in, in competition with Big Paul. It'll actually be in collaboration with and to, you know, really supplement what they're doing. So it's not about, you know, trying to who, who's got the best programs. It's about what how many programs can we provide that actually suit our membership. Yeah, what is best for the members. Um Pecky, do you think that um Vic Paul members becoming mentally unwell, do you think it's um, your own uh, personal view, obviously. Do you think it's to do with, um, I don't know, the length of service, their age, the type of investigations they're involved in, uh, I don't know, the, the stigma, the lack of emotional intelligence or education for our supervisors? What, what, where do you think it is? What's the problem? Well, you know, all, all of those things you mentioned were in the, the review by Peter Cotton. 
you know, the, the 39 recommendations that come out of the Victoria Police Mental Health Review touched on every one of those issues you mentioned. We really, I think we do have a better understanding of the, of the problem. What we're struggling with is finding solutions. And what we've done at the moment is really focused on those in crisis, which is, you know, appropriate. We, we need to focus on those. But we've really got to start now looking at that next step. How, is it, as you say, and one of the benefits of Blue Hub is those assessments. There is a big research component to Blue Hub as well will for the first time be collecting data from all these members who are coming in in crisis and understanding what it, what is it that's causing this and what treatments work best for which presentation. So it, it gives us an opportunity to start to understand why we have so many members impacted. You know, is it is it more a societal thing that we're, we're you know, in society more broadly, mental health's a far bigger issue than it has been in the past? And, and you know, they're in the highest risk industry for a mental health injury in the state. Yeah. Uh, are they God. spending enough time on preparing for such a such a career? So, you know, without taking too much time, I'll give you a quick example. When I speak to the recruits, you know, when when I joined, you had to be able to reach you know marker A, B, C, and D to be physically ticked off to join VicPol because physically it was a demanding job. So you had to be able to swim fifty meters. You had to be able to go over a bloody fence. You had to be able to run so far in a certain time. So if you wanted to join and you weren't up to that you would go and get a swimming coach. You would go and run and practice and train. You would every day, you'd change your diet, you'd, you'd you know, look after your sleep, you'd do all these things to make sure you were physically right to get over that hurdle. In fact, you were far more likely to get a mental health injury than a physical injury. What effort and what thinking do we put into our mental health? Because my strong belief now is that it's what we do every day with our mental health that matters. It's the little things that we do personally every day that allow us to manage our mental health. And once we understand those and know that they can change over time and we reflect and we think and we you know, reflect on our day and think, well, what went well and what didn't go well? Why did I feel so anxious during that period but the other period I was okay? How did I manage those you know, really intrusive and negative thoughts when they came in? Um, what, what was the techniques I used that worked? That reflection piece, the other piece around diet and exercise and sleep that we know ties into our mental health. It may be that you see a clinician every month. It may be that you've got a, you know, it's your parents you go and see or a friend or someone that you talk to. But developing that plan so that every day we start with a positive outlook on how we're going to go, accepting that during that day you may well experience anxiety. You may well feel a bit down, but that's life. Anything we put effort into is always going to have a downside. Tell me a relationship you've had that's meaningful that hasn't had some difficult periods where there's been a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety. But that's the benefit of the relationship. That's why it's so strong and so beautiful. But if we continually put everything into that, what I referred to earlier, that you know, the Vic Pole bubble, and we neglect ourselves and the little things that we need to do every day, you you can't just walk back to that. You can't give everything to Vic Pole and be in that secure place or that you perceive to be secure. And I don't want this to sound like I'm. I'm using Vic Pol more as an analogy, not a... Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I understand. Yeah. Yep. So, so if you put everything into policing, oh, it would be a better word. And, and that's where you go because you know you won't be challenged. You know you can keep working and, and you'll get that good buzz because people say you're good at it. But you neglect and don't love and don't nurture the other part of your life. If that bubble bursts, the blue one, what have you got left? And, and when we talk about transition to retirement, how often do we see that happen? They're going to leave, but what am I going to do? 
because I haven't nurtured and loved and cared for the other part of me. And that's really the message I'm talking about when we start now on a, a new way of looking at how do we educate and train our members around mental health that's different to everything else that's been offered before, that's actually specific to, to, to policing. I think that's probably a good place to um, uh, finish off, Tim. Um, I suppose in closing, I want to thank you for what you're doing for members and their families out there who are in the position that you were in a long time ago. Um, and, you know, what I'd love to do is thank your wife and family oh, for their love and support of you, Pe- Pecky, because um, without them... I I hate to think where you'd be, but thank you so much for your time and for what you're doing for the community. Thanks, Tim. No, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, yes, I thank myself every day for my wife and children. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Tim. Thank you to Tim Peck and, of course, to Narelle Fraser for allowing us to share that episode with you of her podcast, The Narelle Fraser Interviews. There's a link in our show notes to help you subscribe to that show and, of course, there's also a link to help you get your tickets to see Narelle live on stage with us in a couple of weeks at the Yarraville Club. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.